Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. There's no doubt that technology has revolutionized the way we work, socialize, and learn, but only a subset of people living today even remember what life was like before the internet and what we've lost by being constantly connected to each other. Future generations and even children today will probably never experience life without the internet and won't know what it feels like to be absent. Perhaps this means the end of loneliness, and some people will look forward to the end of memorizing. But what, if anything, will we be losing? On this episode, author Michael Harris discusses his book, The End of Absence, a discussion on reclaiming what we've lost in a world of constant connection. Well, welcome to the show, Michael. Um, Your book is called The End of Absence. And it's founded on this idea that we're uh, the last generation of people in history to know what life was like before the internet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for the purposes of the book, we, we I sort of set this date of 1985 as uh, the last year that you could be born and still have been an adult uh, in a pre-internet world, which is it's kind of a parlor game, but uh, somewhere around there, I think, is is the dividing line. And you call that the straddle generation. Yeah, I mean, I was born in 1980, so I think of myself as, like, uh, one of the last ones through the gate, I guess, to have this uh, memory of before and still be able to live after. That's the one of the guiding ideas in the book, is that we're living uh, in this kind of... Uh, rare and very lucky moment in history where we get to uh, know life before the internet and afterward. So that's that notion of the straddle generation. And and what does that what does that mean for us? Why is that important that we remember what it was like before? Uh, well what we what we can carry forward is I guess a value uh, a valuing of absence and solitude and daydreaming. Um, uh, which is, I mean, that's why the book is called The End of Absence. Uh, every communication technology uh, uh, changes our lives, obviously, but what's important about our moment in history is that it's happened so rapidly that we have the opportunity to, uh, I guess, remind ourselves of what came before. So, I mean, for example, uh, the printing press in 1450 it really didn't uh, uh, have its full effect for centuries, uh, whereas in our lives, the Internet has reimagined uh, our, uh, our experience and restructured monopolies of knowledge uh, within a single generation. And so, so you say that 
this is a rare thing and that the generations that are to come will will not even know what they're missing, right? And is that is that because they won't seek out experiences where they might be isolated or lonely or absent? I think it's because we all, just by nature of being human, are obsessed with uh, social grooming and with connections. We love having our voices heard. We love feeling as though we are connecting to other other people, and we and we we get such joy out of uh, uh, having our lives affirmed in the ways that online technologies are so good at doing. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that impulse; it's a good one. the The problem comes when we have a super abundance of social connection, in the same way that sugars and fats that are good for us become a problem when we have a super abundance of of those kinds of foods. So. Future generations, I, I, uh, my notion is that they will benefit from being reminded of the value of solitude and absence uh, because those things aren't going to come naturally to them. They can't, we, we won't be able to any longer be passive, uh, passively uh, absorbing uh, our technological environment. We'll have to actually engineer moments of absence for ourselves. So are we socially obese? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I think we're socially obese, yeah. I think, I think that's what it comes down to, or, or that we've uh, created for ourselves this fantastic, uh, superabundant uh, environment where you know, you're walking into the, the grocery store of, of social media, and uh, because, because it's so new, we, we go directly for the fast food aisle without really thinking. And I, I think a lot of people who write about technology are, are starting to, you know, raise raise the alarm a little bit and say, actually, uh, we may need to be more proactively designing our media diet. Hmm. I, I have a couple of questions on that one. What, what would the optimum media diet look like? Well, it's got to be different for everybody, right? And I, I imagine there's going to be a shifting baseline. So, uh, uh, I, I mean, if you look at uh, history, we find that like Thoreau thought that train travel was incredibly fast-paced and was destroying life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, destroying his, his quiet life. And now I think of it as kind of pleasantly rolling, and my children will think of it as this glacial uh, pace. Uh, so it's always going to be nudged down that road. Um, I, I think I've forgotten what your question was. <laughs> so, I mean, should we be social vegans? I mean, should we totally Oh, uh, Sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think everybody has to make their, up their own mind about that. Um, the, the one thing that I feel staunch about is that... Uh, we do need uh, media studies in our schools, not just in universities, but in high schools and elementary schools, where it's basically non-existent right now. But uh, we, we need to be able to give uh, ourselves, like give the next generation, uh, the tools with which to look critically at the way that they use their technologies so that they can make real decisions, uh, like proactive decisions about how much screen time they want, 
Uh, I mean, right now, the, the last number I saw from America was that the average teenager is taking, I think, six to eight hours of screen time a day. So there's sort of this tipping point where you're actually spending more time looking at a glowing rectangle than at the world as it is. Uh, and I, I think a person could argue that that's that that hit of media obesity, obesity where we need to maybe just write the balance a little bit. So you brought up um, education, and mm. I think that's one of the most, maybe the most striking and most quickly adopting of technology is actually in schools, in elementary schools, because um, children respond very well to um, to lessons that are taught through computers or um, on yeah. smart boards, right? And so teachers, you know, rush to include include that. Um, well, and, and I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, when I talk about bringing media studies into elementary schools, uh, children don't need help being attracted to these technologies, as you, know, as you know. What they need help doing is seeing themselves use those technologies. Uh, I, I think that there's a really important distinction to be made there. Um, if, you, if you bring an iPad into an elementary school classroom, you, you aren't just helping them uh, learn whatever they're learning on that iPad. You're teaching that student how to learn. You're teaching them that uh, education is a kind of entertainment in a way, or it will be that that uh, that education can be facilitated through uh, a very uh, distractible medium like an iPad, where things are flashing and changing constantly. And it does. Uh, we we know that that using these technologies will ultimately uh, discourage other kinds of learning that maybe have uh, a slower speed but also involve greater comprehension. So um, thus far we've been kind of equating um, technology with sociability or um, the social side of technology, right? But we use it for other things like, like you're starting to bring up, which is um, collective memory, some people call it. Um, and I know you have you have a really nice chapter on on memory, and I think that that that's something that resonates with a lot of people is is not needing to remember anything anymore. Um, can you yeah. touch on that? Well, the the chapter on memory in the end of absence, um, uh, I think maybe the heart of it is this distinction between memory and recall. Uh, we use this word memory when we talk about our computer storage capacity. But I think that's actually a mistake to use that word. Because what computers are fantastic at and what we do need them for is their, their recall ability, which means they pull a file uh, for you. And it is essentially exactly the same as it was when you left it there. Um, human memory is something very different. We're finding uh, increasingly so uh, uh, Neuroscientists are finding that the, the way that memory works, which is still basically a mystery to us, uh, uh, it 
it changes. Those memories change every time we remember them. So you, you're actually, through the process of remembering parts of your life, you're actually curating and painting a story of your life. Uh, it's an intrinsically uh, human uh, activity, this, this narrative that we build over time, which can be uh, filled with things like people's names, their eye colors, their phone numbers, uh, their addresses, all those things that we're now in the business of forgetting. Uh, so while I do love the computer's recall ability, uh, I think we, we need to stop using that word memory for them because uh, what we have in our brains is something very different and, uh, and much more uh, intangible. Yeah, and another thing I liked that you said is that um, the purpose of memory isn't just to, you know, pull up pieces of trivia, um, but it's to kind of, and the purpose of memorizing things specifically is to internalize them and and mm. make them a part of the way you see the world. Yeah, it, it's this idea of neuroplasticity, right? Uh, that that which you digest in such a deep way actually informs your mind. Uh, and obviously these things are, uh, they're a little bit fuzzy when you try and get down to the neuroscience. Uh, it, it's beginning to emerge, the science of it, but I, I think that uh, partly we need to rely on um, uh, professors of poetry and professors of history and, and our own anecdotal experience in order to see that that is true. So, um, what, what, what are the bad things that the um, future generations are going to avoid, right? Is, are there any, like, you know, they won't have to memorize facts ever again. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll never be <laughs> bored, right? I mean, supposedly they're going to be better, I mean, are they truly worse off for not having to do that? Well, you know, the book is not anti-technology. I, I, I think that uh, it, it can seem that way at first blush because uh, just a lot, of, a lot of books about the Internet are, are critiques, uh, but it, it really takes the position that technology itself is neither good nor evil, uh, that it's merely dangerous like a lot of wonderful tools that we have. And in no way am I arguing for abstinence or uh, for some sort of Luddite revolution. Uh, I, I really just feel like uh, we need to craft those healthy media diets. Um, that said, the one thing that future generations, I think, are going to have a hard time with is uh, forming a sense of self that is independent of the masses. Uh, because what what we what strikes me uh, with the way that life loggers uh, behave online and the way that a lot of us behave in, in a little way online is we we put parts of ourselves uh, on sites like Twitter and Facebook and we adore the fact that those parts of ourselves become gilded with the approval of others. We have this star rating on, on Yelp or Amazon. We have thumbs up on Facebook. 
Uh, importantly, Facebook doesn't let you dislike anything. You can only approve. Uh, and when, when I see that, it makes me worry sometimes that the, that the bias is going toward collective approval systems like that and away from uh, the kind of rich interior life that solitude uh, allows where you create your own approval, where you have independent thinking. Uh, so I, I think that's the, uh, the, for me, the largest danger with moving, uh, moving the bias too far online is that you, you lose your sense of independent thinking. Hmm. And it's, it's hard not to think of Thoreau now. Um, again, I probably throughout your book, it was hard not to continuously quote him, but I think you even um, brought up his idea of um, people aren't lonely because they're alone. They're lonely because they're not doing solitude well. They're not doing a good job of being alone, right? Yeah, Sherry Turkle, the professor over at MIT, uh, sort of paraphrases that as well. Uh, she says, uh, loneliness is failed solitude. And I think it's very true that, and you know, when, when you take uh, like a week offline or a month offline uh, as a kind of digital detox, you do go through this period of real discomfort where you're not good at being alone at first. Uh, and it, it's kind of like cutting off sugar or trying to uh, break away from any addiction. Uh, it, it takes a little while before you get to the other side of that discomfort and remember what the value of absence or solitude might be. And what what is that value? What what happens when people are alone that, that can't happen when they're constantly communicating with people? Well, I, as I said before, that's, that's where you develop a rich interior life. That's where you uh, are really able to think independently. It's not that... Uh, all creativity or all great thinking happens entirely in a silo, but we uh, we forget sometimes that real connections have to take place in this dynamic between uh, being connected to other people and then separating. We we can't have paradigm shifting breakthroughs in the confines of a comment feed, you know? You don't, you don't have really creative thinking <laughs> at, a, at a conference table. You, you have to go and see what the world is doing, absolutely, but then you also have to retreat to that kind of, mm. kind of power of yourself, uh, it, uh, if that makes sense. We, I think we have to always be moving between connection and disconnection, and that, that's where we get uh, really original thinking. <laughs> So are you one of um, the, the many people that, that, that believe, even though we are um, on paper more social, I think, I can't remember if it was from your book, but the average teen sends 4,000 texts a month, which is... It, it's not send 4,000 texts, it's actually handle 4,000 texts. So I think that number refers to sending and receiving. Okay. But uh, in but any case, it, it's... But it, it's still a pretty obscene number. Right? It's pretty obscene. Um, yeah. So object, on paper, we're communicating, connecting more. Um, so are, do you believe that those connections are somehow more shallow or, or that even despite the numbers, we're really failing to form as deep of connections as, as we would without media, social media? 
I, mean, I, I try not to be too judgy about these things, but... but <laughs> you can be judgy. But when you look at the numbers, I mean, it, there are 6,000 tweets every second. Uh, every minute of our lives, there's, I think it's 100 hours. Is it 100 hours or 10 hours? Uh, I think it's 100 hours of YouTube oh, are uploaded. It is 100 uh, hours every minute. 100 hours every minute, yeah. Um, so we're living through this um, uh, flood of, of communication. Um, but, uh, you know, T.S. Eliot talked about this, about, like, where, where, is the, where is the signal amidst the noise? Uh, and, and I think, I, I think it's important to not be fooled by a flood of data into thinking that that is the same thing as deriving meaning from that data. Um, Christopher Rudder, the guy who founded OkCupid, has a book coming out next month called Dataclism, uh, which I think is a great word that he's coined, uh, which is this uh, cataclysm of data, basically. That's what he describes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think we, you were kind of getting at this point, but do you think that there's a sense of people just being overwhelmed by the, the availability of data by, you know, the fact that they, they could learn anything or, um, read anything or, or watch anything. And there's this, it's almost like a scholastic fear of missing out. Yeah. I mean, that was, that sense of um, being drowned in potential content uh, or potential contacts uh, is very, it's a visceral feeling for a lot of people. I, I mean, that was uh, what I was feeling before I started writing this book. Um, and I, of course, I still feel it sometimes. Uh, but I was working at a city magazine and I had two monitors in front of me. I had my iPhone constantly pinging. Uh, and I was just experiencing this uh, digital uh, uh, deluge. Uh, and I, I found myself responding to content so much more than I was creating something meaningful. And uh, I think that's what a lot of people feel. The more I talk to people, the more I found it was this sort of ambient anxiety that... that uh, a lot of people my age, uh, and maybe not my age also, were feeling. Um, and so I was lucky to catch you at a time um, when you were back online, but for a while this month you were participating in something you call Analog August. Can you tell mm. us about, about your efforts there? Yeah, well, Analog August, uh, the first one was just me, and that was a year ago. I took the entire month of August off, uh, off from the internet and away from my cell phone, um, which was, you know, crushingly lonely, but also uh, a way to really reboot my brain and, uh, and, and uh, remind myself uh, why I valued solitude and, and absence. Um, so now the book happens to be coming out uh, in August. So... Uh, my publisher, Current, uh, in, in the States, uh, has set up this initiative called Analog August, kind of uh, inspired by that chapter of the book. Uh, and 
take a whole month off because they would lose their jobs. But if they, if they even just take a weekend off, we thought that would be useful or valuable for people. So we're encouraging people to take a weekend off from the Internet sometime in August. You could even do it in September if you like. And, uh, and as a kind of uh, encouragement or, or enticement, uh, uh, Penguin will actually send anyone who does that uh, a free copy of uh, a Penguin Classic. So there's five different Penguin Classics that they get to choose from, including, including Thoreau. <laughs> and hopefully they'll do that before you go offline so you know you won't be too bored yeah 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 exactly <laughs> um so i like that it's a small thing that people can do it's probably harder than it sounds um but i think that um part of the reason that people cannot be too anti-technology is that we do all rely on technology and so most people take an attitude of, I know it's not good for me, but I'm going to do it anyway because I have to. Um, and I like that you open your book with a quote from um, Melvin Kranzberg that is, yeah. technology isn't good or bad, nor is it neutral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think when people first read that, they think it's a contradiction, right? Like, it, if it's not good or bad, it has to be neutral. But the, the point of that quote is, is exactly... Uh, what, what you're getting at, it's not, um, it, we can't think of technology in, in moral terms. We have to think of it uh, in terms of how we use it, how, how potentially powerful slash dangerous it is in our hands. But the, the, uh, the active force is, is ourselves. It, it, the book is very... Uh, uh, ambitious, I suppose, because it does cover a lot of territory, uh, and it's sort of coming from a perspective of memoir, philosophy, and and uh, hard reporting. Um, so, uh, given given how how uh, broad the book uh, subject is, I think we did a very good job. Again, that was author Michael Harris, and his new book is called The End of Absence. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. If you're not an, on an analog break, you can always join us next week for more from the world of science and, of course, technology. Until then, enjoy the rest of the week, keep your smartphone use in check, and, as always, keep on rocking.